I have a little illustration, and I'm going to need some assistance here. And so I would like to invite Oliver up here. Oliver, are you with us? There he is. Come on, Oliver Millen, show him some love. Show him some love. Now, Ollie, turn around to everybody. I want you to take this stick, and I want you to break that stick. Ooh, man, you're strong. Man, you're strong. All right, now, I want you to take this bundle of sticks. Break this. Mm. Ooh, you putting all you got into that, but it's not budging. All right, that's good work. I would like to invite Elder Chris Moore. He's been on sabbatical. He's very strong right now. I want to invite him to come on up. He's rested. He's got the fire. And I want Elder Chris to break this bundle of sticks. Come on. There's everything you got, Elder Chris. They're conferring. They're working together, all right? They're going to see. Oh, he's putting everything into it. Oh, it's not breaking. All right, all right. You know what? I want, I want Brother Chris to come on up. No, you stay up here, Elder. I want Brother Christopher Brown to come on up. You know, he might be a little bit stronger than Elder Chris. So we get Brother Christopher, come on up and break these sticks, brother. Don't, don't pray them holy prayers and break that stick. He's jamming it on his knee. He's putting everything he's got into it. Those sticks just aren't breaking. All right. Look, I need one more. I need Elder Kenny. Come on up. We're getting all the power in this place. And I want you to break this bundle of sticks. Now, look, look, this is three strong men who have broken this stick. Now, now you separated. Now, you're working with the illustration. That's good. Break the bundle, brother. Break the bundle. Break the bundle. There we go. See, now this is perfect. Now, I want you to see something. Thank you all very much. You can go ahead on your way. I appreciate that. Now, look. It has become very popular these days to think that the bundle doesn't matter. It has been fixed in people's minds that we don't really need the church. We don't really need community. We don't need to be bound to other people. It's me and Jesus. I can have my quiet time. I can live a fruitful, faithful, and, and strong life all by myself. But here's the deal. Even the smallest opponent over time can break the person who is separated from the community of faith. But I want you to see that we brought out every manner of enemy to try and break the bundle. And the only way that that cheating Dr. Kenny Gibbs could break anything out of this bundle is when he separated it from the bundle. My friends, we have been working through the book of Hebrews, and we have been seeing something of the ministry of Christ as our high priest and what that means for his people. We talked last week about the new covenant, the new way of relating to God, the new way in which our relationship to God is not dependent upon our performance and all the good we can do to maintain our relationship with him. That's not what it's about. The new covenant is all about how God not only upholds faithfulness on his side of the relationship, but God 
sent his son in human flesh to live out the faithfulness on this side of the covenant so that the only thing we need is faith in Christ to unite us to God, to maintain the covenant. All we need is faith. We've talked about the new covenant, but in our text for today, we begin to talk about the covenant community. We've been working through, in a sense, the what of the text. What is it that we're talking about? What does the writer of this sermon care to tell us? That's the what. But in our text for today, it marks a transition. We go from the what to the so what and the now what. All right? Jesus is the high priest. Jesus has brought a new and better covenant. So what? Well, we're going to learn that today in our text. And now what? What do we do? What does it mean? And what do we do now that we know Jesus as our great high priest who has, who has instituted a new and better covenant? That's what we're going to get into today. And we're going to see that all of God's work in the world, all of God's plans for his people are worked out through community. If you study the scriptures, if you read through the story of God, what you will see is there is a consistent acknowledgement that everything that God is doing, he is doing through his community. Everything that he's doing in individual people, he's doing through their participation in his community. God has designed spiritual life in such a way that our survival is dependent, it's dependent upon our committed connection to his community. Do y'all hear me? Our survival is dependent upon our committed connection to his local community. His local community. That's the basis of our survival. That's what we're going to see in this text for today. That's how God works through his community. And we're turning in this text, as I said, to consider the covenant community. We talked about the new covenant. Now we get to the covenant community. And our passage for today is going to give us the so what and the now what. What's it mean? And, and what should we be doing? And what should we be becoming as God's people? What do we do? And what should we become as God's people in light of the great high priest? So this morning, we're going to approach our text through two points. We're going to see our priorities and our perseverance. And here's the big idea. Maintaining the priorities that God lays out for his community through this text is the way in which we persevere. Our perseverance is dependent upon our priorities in this text. That's what we see the writer saying to these folks. There's more to say about the topic throughout scripture, but this is what is being said to us this morning. So let's begin with our priorities. Just to recap what we've been covering. If you're new with us this morning, we're so glad to have you. We have been walking through the book of Hebrews. And one of the important things uh, when it comes to, to hearing the scriptures preached is we like to go through portions of scripture and we take it text by text. We lay it out together. Rather than cherry picking various passages from various parts of scripture, what we like to do is we'd like to sit down in one book or one section of scripture and mine it to see how it's being communicated, to see the, the case that is being made. And in this text, we have a sermon. This was a sermon that was preached to a congregation much like ours. It was a city church, a small city church. 
They, they were in a, in a governmental situation that was very opposed to their faith. It was much different, more, more intense than anything that we face right now as American Christians. But the, the Roman government was opposed to them. And this was a small little church, and they were trying to figure out how do they survive the headwinds that they're facing as Christians. And a lot of them were getting weak. They were, they, they were wavering. And so this sermon is written, and it's given to this community. It's read aloud in the community in order to tell them how they are to press on, how they are, perse- how they are to persevere. And what the writer gives them is not five steps to perseverance. The writer doesn't give them a, 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 a little handbook of practical suggestions The answer to their practical need is the lifting up of Jesus and trying to help them to see that theology matters. Who Jesus is, is important. And if you really understand and you really bring into your heart all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, it transforms the way in which you face the headwinds in this life. He's the one that you need most. This is what they need. So what he does is, He begins with laying out Jesus as the high priest who lives in solidarity with his people. That means that he shares our experience. Jesus knows what it's like to live the life that you live in human flesh. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to feel weary. He knows what it's like to have people agitating him and pressing in on him. He knows what it's like to be disrespected and devalued by other people. He knows what it's like to see the temptations that face us every day. But he never wavered. He never buckled. And our salvation hinges upon his faithfulness. Jesus is the great high priest who's able to sympathize with us. And then he goes on to lay out this teaching about Jesus as the high priest. He says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He takes us back to the Old Testament Because these folks to whom he was writing, they were Jews with Greek culture, Hellenistic Jews, and they knew the Bible. They knew it. And so what he did is he went back and he used scripture to show them that it was going to Jesus. Melchizedek comes on the scene. He has no beginning as you read the text. He has no end as you read the text. And he uses this to say, this is is pointing to Jesus, the great high priest of his people. Melchizedek is a greater priest than the Levitical priests. He's pointing to Jesus, who's a greater priest than the Levitical priests. And then he goes on to show that Jesus offers a better sacrifice. Jesus has a a greater ministry because he offered this greater sacrifice himself. And he mediates a better covenant because it's enacted on greater promises. And now, here it is, friends, in our text for today, he's saying, and this is what that means for you. Have you ever thought of the high priest? of Jesus as being eminently practical for your life? The writer of Hebrews is telling you it is. If it's an unfamiliar concept for you, think advocate. When you have no one to speak on your behalf and someone steps in like an attorney, Jesus is an advocate. He's our high priest. He mediates between us and God. These are the themes that he hits in the main teaching section. And now in our text for today, he says, let me break down what that means for you. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, he revisits those themes. He he gives you the recap. Now, this is everything I've been saying. And now look at verse 19. Check it out. So what? So what? Now what? 
Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what is the proper response? Three exhortations. Verse 22, let us draw near, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. These are the priorities of the covenant community. Do you see this? Since we have, since we have, let us, let us, let us. Do you see it? You see that in the text? All right. So these three exhortations are what we're going to cover in the priorities. These are the priorities. What should our priorities be now that Jesus has done his high priestly ministry and continues to carry out that high priestly ministry for us? First, verse 22, let us draw near. Now that is shorthand for worship. That is shorthand for worship. What should we do now? Now that we have access to God through Jesus Christ, through his blood, we should draw near in worship. The writer, check this out. The writer of this sermon doesn't want the high priestly ministry of Christ to simply be an object to study theologically. He's holding out a person to love and worship devotionally and corporately. Do y'all hear me? God is not just an object of our theological reflection. He is a person who is to, to receive our devotion as we gather together corporately. We don't just put God in the beaker and study him with our microscope. We love him like a person, like a spouse, like, a, like our children. That kind of love, that is the kind of heart response that should be welling up as we draw together for worship. You see what he's saying? He's holding out a person. It's not enough to talk about access. We must enter. You see this? It's not enough to talk about loving God. We must lift our hearts to him in song. It's not enough to think about forgiveness. We must confess our sins together and hear his pardon. We, look, look, look. It's not enough to talk about the glory of Christ. We must glorify him. This is what he's saying. Do you see the implications? This is the response. Worship is the response to all that God is and all that God has done in the high priestly ministry of Jesus. But notice, it's not just individual worship that he's focusing on here. It's distinctly corporate. Let us, there's a togetherness to these passages. What he's emphasizing is the importance, the significance of what we do here on Sunday mornings. We don't just show up here to check the box. We show up here because we love him and we love one another and we love this place and we want this place to know this love. That's, that's why we show up. We Look, worship is the highest form of love and the most powerful means of witness. Do you know that? Worship is the highest form of love and the most powerful means of witness. On Sunday morning, we are enacting the good news of God's grace together. That's why 
we point out on many Sundays our liturgy, our order of worship. Do you know why we have a call to worship? Because that's the best news ever, that God invites us to draw near to him. God invites us to see all that he is. And when we come into his presence, even though we recognize that we are morally stained, that we fall short in countless ways, we are invited to confess our sins, to acknowledge our need for grace. We're invited. How many people do you know that would invite you to lay out all the ugliness of your own heart so that they could show you all the goodness of their heart covering your ugliness? He invites you to come and confess And when you're honest before him, then he speaks his pardon over you. And that initiates communion. Then we pray. Then we have connection to God. And he continues to teach us and instruct us in the preaching of the word. And then guess what? He invites us to his table. He hosts us. We dine with him. At this table, he nourishes us and strengthens us so that we can live the life to which he calls us. And then we respond in in song because our hearts delight in him, because he's so good. And God gets the last word, and it's a good word. We will never tire of rehearsing this liturgy because this is the life-giving rhythm of the Christian community. There is no circumstance of life that is not put aright when you look at the liturgy, when you put your life in the context of this story. Are you sinning badly and in need of forgiveness? Put yourself in this story. Are you tired and don't know how you're going to press on? Put yourself in this story. Are you lacking wisdom? Do you need direction and you don't know which way to go? Put yourself in this story. Worship is rehearsal for the eternal life, the good life, the fruitful, abundant life that we will share with God in in the future. We have that right now. We're enacting this grace together. Every person, y'all, at some point, at some time, feels their distance from God. Have you ever felt like God is distant? Like, where is God? I have. Maybe it comes in a time of suffering. Maybe it just comes out of nowhere for you at some point. Maybe you experience a deep loss and you're, where is God? Well, listen. You know, that has been the circumstance of humanity ever since Genesis 3, since the fall of humanity. You know, we were made for God's presence, right? We were made to live in connection with God. The the scriptures early on in Genesis, when it talks about the creation of mankind, what it says is when God created Adam, he formed him, and then it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You know what you should picture there? Face to face with God, God breathes into Adam the breath of life. And the first thing that Adam sees when his eyes open and life is put into him, face to face with God. That's what you were made for. You were made for that kind of intimacy with God. But when mankind decided that they wanted to try and figure out life on their own, aside from the instruction of God and the warning of God, there's something very powerful you have to notice in the text. They were were confronted by God. What have you done? And God, even though he comes in judgment, he gives them a ray of hope. I'm going to deal with this down the road. 
But at the end of the story in Genesis 3, you notice that Adam and Eve are put out of Eden. You know, Eden was the first sanctuary. That was the first temple where God's presence was to be found. And they are kicked out of Eden. And what does God do? He puts a cherub, cherubim, with flaming swords in front of Eden. They cannot get back into God's presence. Fast forward after God redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. And he's about to take them to the promised land. They stop at Mount Sinai. And they stop at the foot of the mountain. And God says, I'm going to give you the organizing principles of your community. I'm going to call Moses to come up to the top of the mountain to receive this instruction so that I can guide y'all. But y'all, y'all can't come up on this mountain. Only my mediator can do it. Don't step foot on the mountain. Don't come past the boundaries. And then the text says God came down. And there there was a, a cloud that came around, circled the mountain. And there was flashes of lightning. God shook the mountain. That was his presence. And all the people were in awe of the presence of God. But they knew that they could not come across his boundary. Then God establishes the tabernacle. And as we've covered in previous weeks, only the high priest could enter in to the presence of God. And that was once a year with sacrifices, boundaries. They couldn't get in. And you know what? You know what separated the most holy place from the rest of the sanctuary? It was a curtain with cherubim embroidered on it. A reminder of the distance between humankind and God ever since Genesis 3. And the same thing continued on with the temple, when the temple was built, and then when the temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt again, same thing. All through the story of God's people, you see that there is this distance between God and his people. Only certain people, the high priests, could get in. Only they could experience the presence of God, and even then it was mediated. They had to have the smoking censer because they couldn't behold his presence It was dangerous for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. Distance, distance, distance ever since Genesis 3. But look at verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. This is the most extraordinary and astonishing thing that God has done. He has created a way for people like us to come into the presence of a God like him. That is incredible. It's our highest privilege, worship is. Gathering together as his redeemed community is the highest privilege that we have. We were created for this. This is the direction of our lives. That's why God rescued us, and that's where we're headed. Worship, worship, worship. That's love. We don't worship because it will make our church grow. We don't worship because it will make our lives better. We worship because God is worthy. Do you know who he is? He has announced himself. He's full of goodness. He's full of glory. His majesty, his grace and forgiveness, his patience with sinners, his condescension to speak our language. He perseveres with us. No amount of sin can separate you from his love. He works in your life. He's generous to you. 
All of the pleasures of joy are in his hands. He is worthy of our worship. That's why we worship. And now that we have access, it's the great privilege that we have. And practically speaking, what this means is that we must repent for our apprehension to gather and worship. We must repent for not prioritizing worship with the community of God. It's a privilege to spurn your privileges is crazy. It's a crazy thing. We must repent for that. We must ask his forgiveness. This is this is the one thing. Psalm 27, David says, this is, this is the one thing that I ask of the Lord. This one thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Translation, the one thing I want is God himself. The one privilege of knowing God is having him in all of his fullness. We worship because God is worthy. We worship because the Spirit has awakened us to the glory of God. We worship because Christ has given us access to the glorious presence of God. We prioritize it as our highest privilege. That's what the writer's saying. It's one of the great priorities of the church, corporate worship. Here's an application. Don't wait until you get here to defrost your heart. Don't wait until halfway through the service to finally warm up to this thing. Prepare your heart before you come to worship. Prepare your heart before you get here. Prepare your children before you get here. Get them ready. Help them to lift up and esteem what it means to gather together as God's people. You know why? Because it's one of the most important things that we do. I need you to sing like you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I need you to do that because there are going to be days where I'm struggling, wondering if it's even worth it to live through this Christian life, to stay committed to God, and I'm going to need to remember you lifting your heart to God. And I'm going to be reminded I'm not the only one who believes this. I'm not crazy. God is worthy. I need you to confess your sins like you believe he is our only hope in life and in death. I need you to be honest before God and honest about the hope that we have in the gospel because there are going to be days where I struggle to believe that I'm forgiven. There are going to be days where I I mess it up so bad, my mind is wrecked, I have rogue, crazy thoughts that go through my head, and I think I'm so ashamed, I don't even know if I could turn my face to God. And it's on those days when I remember you boldly announcing, I am a sinner, but Christ is a great savior. I'm going to need to remember that. To break me free from my shame and my guilt and my fears, we got to worship like he is worthy. We got to shake loose. We might need to affirm a truth when it gets down in. When you hear something and you recognize it's good news, you might need to say amen. You might need to lift up a spontaneous praise to God because he's working in your life. You know what? You know what I recognize? When people come in free to worship, it tells me that they are in touch with all that God has been doing Monday through Saturday in their lives. 
They're in touch with all the work that God is doing in their lives. They're in touch with how much of an advocate God has been for them. They have been paying attention to God's work in the world, God's work in their lives, among their roommates, among their family members, and they are determined to come in and speak highly of his name. It tells me that you are woke to what God is doing in the world when you come in with a free praise on your heart. That's what worship does. And guess what? If all of us do that, it heightens our awareness of all that God is doing. And you know what? The most powerful witness is when people overhear our worship. If people were to gauge God's worth by the quality of our worship, what would they determine about God? How would they gauge God? It's not a question that's meant to guilt you. It's a question that is meant to provoke you. Do I lift up my heart to God in such a way that it jives with all I know he's doing? We want there to be a parallel between all we recognize God to be and to be doing and the way that we freely give ourselves in worship together. The way in which we share. You know, I got a beautiful illustration of this yesterday. Yesterday it was... My big boy, Elijah, his fifth birthday. Yes, he made it this far without me taking him out. Um, just kidding. Uh, he, is, he is a delight to me, and I love the boy. Um, but I, I, he got gifts as usual, his grandparents blessing him and, and all of these gifts. But you know what he did with every single gift he got? He wasn't content to just play with it by himself. He took the gift and he said, look at this. Look at that. He showed everybody in the room every gift. Look at what I got. Dad, look, 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 look. He showed it off because guess what? Intuitively, he knows that having the gift is not complete until you share it and you boast in it with the people around you to recognize it together. Look at the good thing that I have. We have God together, family. We have a father. We are not orphans anymore. We're not alone. We have his presence with us. We have his goodness, his advocacy. Let's share it together. That's what worship is. And the more we share it together, the more that we actually have. It awakens us to all that belongs to us in the gospel. Because we have access, because Christ is a great high priest, let us draw near. But also, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is discipleship. So you go worship, and then you go discipleship. Do you know what, you know what he's talking about in this text? He's talking about the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. Holding fast to the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. He says, hold fast to our distinctives. We are the Easter people. We're the people who worship the one who got out of the grave. We're, we're distinct in what we believe, and we must maintain that. And here's an important word for us. He's not saying that we don't contextualize, that we don't try to translate the faith for people to remove barriers so that they can understand the essence of our faith. It's not dumbing it down any more than translating from Chinese to English is dumbing it down. It's translating it into the language that can be understood. Contextualization is one thing, 
but we can't allow contextualization to turn into cowardice, where we're afraid to hold on to our distinctives. He's saying, by all means, make it intelligible to people, but do not let go of our distinctive hope. Do you see? Do you see what he's saying? Look, look, look. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Land on our hope because our hope is a distinct hope from the hopes that other people have. Other people may put their hopes in gaining satisfaction and meaning from a successful career. That may be their hope, but that hope will ultimately frustrate them. It will ultimately come to nothing. Other people may hope in other things, but our hope is that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He has made one sacrifice once and for all to cover all of his people, to not just cover their sins, but to remove their sins. And he's, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, pleading his merits where we have nothing but demerits. That's our hope. Hold on to the distinctives of the Christian faith. And you know how you hold on to the distinct, distinctives of the Christian faith? Community. Community. That's why we value as Christians tradition. Tradition is community going backwards. Traditionalism is a different thing. We've, we've said the quote before, tradition is the living faith of dead saints. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living saints. All right? We're not talking about dead practices that have no roots in the foundations of our faith. We're talking about the, the age-old wisdom of Christians over time and God's work through his people through time to help us to clarify what it is we believe, where we place our hope, and where we place our faith, and what it means to be a Christian in the world. Do not let go of our distinctives. He's taken great pains to express the ultimacy of Christ, the supremacy of his priesthood, and the necessity of his ministry. Now he's calling his friends to stick together as they seek to maintain their distinctive Christian identity and witness. You won't be able to do this by yourself. We need community. And you know what? One of the most important functions of community is on this note, to frustrate you, to contradict you, and you need to receive it, just like all of us do. That may be the very thing that saves your soul. Is people telling you you're wrong, you're in error, you're not in line with the truth of the Christian faith. Come back, repent, lean back into what all Christians in all places at all times have always taught. This is holding fast. But the final thing is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Look at the orientation of this spirituality. It is corporate. It's not just me and Jesus. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. It's not just about waking up and saying, what do I got to do today? But it's about thinking on, reflecting on how I can participate in stirring you up to love and good deeds, seeking your participation in the life of Christ. I want that for you. Because that's where true meaning and true rootedness lies in your participation in the life of Christ. He's calling them to think on the lived reality of their friends, to not be passive, 
to not be passive toward one another. Taking action when I see you doing something good to tell you you're doing something good. When I, when I see you serving faithfully under the radar, to not just see it and think it, but to get it out of my head and into my mouth and to tell you, to, in, to encourage, do you see the text? Not neg- How do you do this? How do you stir one another up to love and good works? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The greatest barrier, I think, to, to seeing this love and good work stirred up is that criticism is our natural reflex, not encouragement. We're good at criticizing people, poking holes in them, pointing out the errors, telling them where it wasn't good enough, where it wasn't clear enough. We're good at criticizing people. Proof? Facebook. Twitter. We're good at hacking each other to pieces. But what if we became the kind of encouraging community that was always recognizing the good that God is doing in the lives of our friends and telling them, saying, you know what? You're generous. Praise God for that. That's a grace he's working in your life. It blesses me. Thank you. It encourages, it fans the flame. Keep pressing on. And then as I encourage you and you encourage me, we grow together in love and we, we honor good work. And that becomes a value of our community that we participate in together. We spur one another on. Rather than letting your reflex this week be criticism, why don't you try encouragement? Why don't you try just whenever you see good this week in your spouse, say, hey, you're doing a good job. You're, you're, you're a good mom. And I see it. And I just want to tell you that. I think that you're faithful. And it just it blesses me. You're consistent. I love the way that you pray. I, every time you pray, it, it hits me in my heart. And, and I can tell you, you live in communion with God. Keep pressing on. Hey, you know what? I love the way that you maintain our Christian distinctives, but in such a winsome way. It blesses me. I'm learning from you. You know what? I love the way that you serve the neighbors. I, I can tell. I, I see it. I love the way that you feel with people. It blesses me, your ability to, to let your heart feel with others. Friends, let's be an encouraging community because this is what fans... You want to see more love in this community? Anybody? Anybody? Only some of y'all. Okay. All right. You want to see more love? You want to see more good works in this community? Then be an encourager. Take responsibility for it and be an encourager in this community. You know what you might need to do this week? You might, you might need to repent of your critical spirit. I know some of you are paid critics. That's what you went to be trained for. That's what you do on your nine to five. I understand that. But don't let that become the overriding way that you operate. You may need to repent of your critical spirit toward people, and you may need to write some notes this week. You may need to send some text messages this week. Hey, I noticed you. You're doing great. Keep it up. What, 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 what kind of good do you think would happen if there were hundreds of text messages and emails that went out this week. It would shape our community in a particular way. Last thing on this note is this. It's not good enough 
for the thoughts to be in your head, you need to speak the words of encouragement. But also notice the obvious here. You can't be a participant or a beneficiary of this ministry of encouragement if you are absent from the community. You have to be present in order to give the ministry. And you have to be present in order to receive the ministry. If you are an absentee member, that, I mean, that's, that's like jumbo shrimp, all right? It's, you'll get that later. You know, it, it doesn't go together. An absent member of the church, that doesn't, that's, that's like a non, non, non sequitur. It doesn't go together. You must be present so that you can give your ministry of encouragement, so that you can receive the needed encouragement. That's why we must not forsake meeting together because love and good works in this text are dependent upon our faithfulness to the covenant community. We have to draw near. We have to hold fast to confession of our hope. We have to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. These are the priorities of the covenant community and that's what shapes our perseverance. The corporate priorities laid out in verses 19 through 25, friends, have a protective dynamic relative to verses 26 and following. You see all the warnings, right? This is the same warning as what happened in chapter uh, 5, 5.11 through 6.10, 6.11. It's the same warning set in a different way. And you know what protects you from falling into the things that, that you're being warned about here? It's living up to, into these priorities. If we maintain these priorities, it will protect us from sinning deliberately by abandoning Christ. It will protect us from falling into the judgment of God and the punishment for, for walking away from Christ. That's what protects us. It's got a protective element. Here's what I'm saying. The bundle matters, y'all. The bundle matters. God's design is for you to live bound together with his people for your own good and for the good that you can spread among people to whom you're connected. Community is not a luxury. It is a necessity. It's a necessity. So as a final application, we have a membership seminar coming up next weekend. If you want to learn more about what it means to be connected, come on. It doesn't obligate you to join this church, but it'll allow you to learn enough to know whether you should join or whether you should go to another church and join. In any event, it's not healthy for you not to be connected to a local church. Membership. But also, friends, you may need to rehearse the vows that you took when you became a member of this church to help be reminded that you need grace to live up into this beautiful community picture. Let it be true of us that we maintain these priorities and that we are a community that perseveres because of the love and good deeds and the worship and the faithful discipleship that is being built up in this place. Amen? Let's pray. Father, bless us, we pray, to live this out in our lives. We pray that you would help us, that you would give us grace to worship you for all that you're worth, to sing and lift our hearts together to not be shy about your greatness in the community. Lord, help us to be faithful to our Christian distinctives and to not fear what any person can do to us because you are our God and you are sovereign and you control all things and you have our back, you are at our side. And Lord, help us to take responsibility this week to encourage one another to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Help us to be proactive encouragers 
Lord, help us to have 10 encouragements for every one criticism that we lay upon the people around us. Help us to use our tongue for good, for blessing and not cursing people, to be a part of their uplift. Help us to be that kind of beautiful community. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.